Hi, my name is John Beasold, and this is Dutch Art and Design Today. I've worked as a writer, editor, and journalist for the past 15 years, most recently at Out Holland, the world's longest surviving art historical journal, which covers the art of the Low Countries from 1400 to the early 20th century. The Netherlands is celebrated worldwide for its golden age art and its modern design counterparts, though rarely do those who work in these fields have the chance to explain that same work in their own words. In this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes and tell the stories of the many museum curators, art educators, contemporary designers, and artists, and everyone in between. In each episode, I'll sit down with some of the key players and the tastemakers in the worlds of Dutch art and design. My next guest is Jane Turner. Jane is an editor, a scholar, a specialist in Dutch and Flemish old master drawings and prints. Jane is also the former head of the print room at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and she has been the editor-in-chief of the journal Master Drawings since 2004. Jane studied art history at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and quickly found her way to working at the college's art museum. She studied in Paris for a year while a student at Smith, refining her eyes and her interest in old master art, and after graduation, decided to move to Manhattan, where she worked at the Cooper Hewitt Museum and the Morgan Library, where she began specializing in Netherlandish drawings of the 16th and the 17th centuries. During her museum days in New York, Jane became known for compiling catalogs of collections, imbuing her with an editorial expertise, particularly concerning hefty tomes. In the late 1980s, Jane moved to London, where she worked for over a decade on the 36-volume Dictionary of Art, a powerhouse of a print publication, the likes of which will never be produced again, and which was itself progressive in its approach to global art and its editorial organization. In 2011, Jane was appointed head of the print room at the Rijksmuseum, where she retired in 2020. Through her work in the United States, the UK, and the Netherlands, Jane has become a globally renowned museum scholar and connoisseur of Netherlands' drawings. In this meanderingly playful talk, Jane and I discuss the course of her career and trace its origins from her hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was, coincidentally, also born, and then discuss her youth spent in Cleveland and what life was like there in terms of her early exposure to museums and modern art, and then move on to discuss some of the ideas and subjects she was interested in as a student. Jane recounts how she ended up moving to Manhattan in the 1970s, and some of the things that she learned from mentors and professors during her time in the city, and what exactly she was up to at the Cooper Hewitt and the Morgan during her time at those institutions. Jane spends a large portion of our conversation underlining the importance of mentorship within her work, and she discusses some of the programs and the initiatives that she's put in place, which advocate for the advancement of young scholars, of prints, and drawings. While at the Rijksmuseum, Jane was responsible for leading numerous digital catalog projects, which made the print room's drawings digitally accessible with full descriptions, technical research, and provenance information, and more. She also was responsible for innovative exhibitions put on by the print room, including one titled XXL, which featured eccentric, huge works on paper, and another titled Franz Post, Animals in Brazil, which featured drawings by the artist and saw plush insects overtake the museum. Lastly, Jane ponders what the future holds for old master drawings and museums, and indeed, she's hopeful for both. <laughs> 
So, Jane, thank you very much for joining me um, on the podcast today, and thanks for making time with me during your trip in Amsterdam. Great pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I like to begin the podcast often um, with speaking with people who I admire or find interesting um, about their childhood and how they found their way to art. Um, and specifically with you, I want to ask you how you found your way to drawings because that's kind of um, drawings and prints. Um, that's kind of a niche within art history itself. So I wanted to ask you um, if there's um, a memory that you have or a certain artwork that led you to um, first be interested in art and then we can talk about later um, your specialization. Well, I understand from a little birdie that we actually share something in common from our background because you were born in Cincinnati, as was I. I was. Um, <laughs> but I, um, I left when I was very young, I think about nine months old, and my parents moved to Cleveland. And my mother ran my father's business, so that they worked on Saturday morning. So my mother used to take my sisters and me to the Cleveland Art Museum, and they had Saturday classes for children. And so that's my earliest memory of going to the museum. And we were very young. I, I can't have been more than about six. Um, and you know, you see a wealth of things. And I'm rather ashamed to say one of my earliest memories was seeing a Mark Rothko painting and just not understanding at all, sort of, why is this special? It's just colors. I can do that, mummy. Um, so, but it was a very good early exposure. And at that time, Cleveland, the Cleveland Museum was the most um, heavily endowed museum in the States. And it was just a very, very, very good place with a wonderful collection, still is. Yeah. But, so that was my early exposure to art. And then um, how did that lead you to then study art on an academic level? That's also a very interesting story because probably as I wanted to be at six years old, an artist, um, in my high school, it was just an ordinary public state school, um, in the, my senior year, they had a very special program called Art Seminar. And I've never heard of this in any other American school. And it was team taught by three teachers. And it was the history, it was called Arts Seminar. And it was the history of art, music, and literature. So, I mean, very broad brush, brush chronological things. So you do a bit of Renaissance art, music, and, and um, drama and then the Baroque and whatever, and it culminated by a trip to New York at the end of the end of the year to sort of go to the to the museums, to see to the theater, to um, the concert at Lincoln Center. Um, and at that point, it was a real eye opener for me because I loved school, I loved history, I loved languages, I loved oil. And there was something about had I gone to art school, I would have restricted my my experience of life. And suddenly, here's this subject I'd never heard of, art history. Mm -hmm. And it was a way of combining the love of art with history and all the other subjects that I loved. And it was at that point I decided to study art history at college. And you went to Smith College, if I'm correct. I yes. did. I did. Um, that choice was they had a very good art history program. They had a junior year abroad program, so I wanted to go to Europe. Where did um, you? Where did you? Did you come to Amsterdam? No, 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 <laughs> no. They, the choices were Paris or Italy, okay. so I did Paris. 
um, my junior year abroad. And um, my, um, I was there on a scholarship. And as part of the scholarship, um, one had to have a, a campus job. So, okay, the first year it was, you know, in the kitchen. The second year it was behind the desk at the art history library. And my then third year was Paris. Fourth year was um, sitting in the print room of the museum. So I I was manned the print print room. So that was my first exposure to works on paper and drawings. Which and museum is this? This the Smith College Museum. Okay. Which, I mean, it's still a, a very nice collection. Okay. Um, at the time, I was interested um, mostly in Italian art and Italian drawings. Yeah. Um, and then I, um, I applied to graduate schools for art history. Um, and I, I was looking for scholarships. And I got a scholarship to go to Ann Arbor. But then uh, the other thing that Smith had um, as part was a January internship program. So my senior year at Smith, I did an internship at the Cooper Hewitt in New York. Yes. Uh, and so I was all set to go to graduate school and I flown out to Ann Arbor and came back and there was a postcard in my mailbox saying, I've just recommended you for a job. At, for, this is from the curator at the Cooper Hewitt. I've just recommended you for a job at the Morgan Library. Want to keep you in New York, take it. That's so I, I skipped graduate school okay, so and I went straight to the Morgan Library well, a couple of weeks after my 21st birthday. Well, that's really special, quick trajectory. Between, <laughs> it, yeah. it was. So, um, but um, first of all, it's really special that you went straight to a museum after studying. But can you talk about during your studies at Smith, um, while you were, for instance, in Paris as well, like why you chose to focus on um, drawings or Italian so, art? So, um, at, in Paris, it, it was very broad brush. There wasn't, drawings didn't feature at that time. So it was only my senior year, and it was especially because I was sitting in the print room. Yeah. Um, and then doing this museum studies course, um, and my favorite professor was taught art, um, Italian art, so that was why I was particularly interested in, in that at the time. Um, and the, the internship at the Cooper Hewitt, although I was an intern in the drawings department, it was still a fairly young museum, and so I had all sorts of unusual jobs. So the one that I most remember is because it's a converted house, um, there was a, a bathroom up in the, the upper top story. And in this big bathtub were all these rolls of wallpaper because it's a essentially it's a, a design, design museum. museum. Yeah. So they had rolls and rolls and rolls of wallpaper paper that had never been inventoried. So my job was to climb into the bathtub and to inventory the, the wallpaper rolls. Oh, wow. List them. Okay. So uh, not much to do with drawings, but I, I was... And due to the course at Smith in museum studies, I was fascinated by the museum world and a way of, of applying art history in this very practical way of engaging with art oneself, but also 
inviting the public in to engage and enjoy it the same way that I did. Yeah, well that's also when I was researching your background to prepare, I was a bit, um, I mean the Cooper Hewitt has changed a lot since uh, you were there, that's also I was a bit uh, uh, kind of wondering how you jumped from the Cooper Hewitt to the Morgan. <laughs> no, well the, the curator at the Cooper Hewitt had been the associate curator at the Morgan. Okay. So, and she had heard that they were looking for a young, you know, the young curatorial assistant, so that she was the one who recommended me for the job and sent this postcard. Nice. Um, and then when you went to the Morgan, how long did you actually, uh, before we jump up um, a bit further <laughs> in time, how long were you at the Morgan? Seven years. Okay. And what would you say um, was your main focus when you started? And what was your focus um, just in relation to your own personal growth? Yeah. What were you busy with when you left? So um, when I came to the Morgan, um, they were just, the curator Felice Stampel had just finished a catalogue on Dutch and Flemish drawings in the Morgan's collection that went to Paris to the Fondation Custodia okay. and to the British Museum. So she was very much involved with Dutch drawings and so, you know, early jobs typing up bibliographies and, and things like that. Um, it was at that point that I wanted to restart the idea of doing, doing graduate school, getting a PhD. Um, and the Morgan very generously gave me one afternoon off a week that I could do it, and then the rest were evening classes. And at the time, um, so Felice Stamfel was the founding editor of the journal Master Drawings, which we'll talk about a lot in yes. a few minutes. Yes. Um, the two associate editors were Jacob Bean from the Met and Egbert Haverkamp-Begemann from NYU. Um, Jacob had just had, he'd had a cataract operation which had gone bad and he got a detached retina. He had been teaching at the Institute of Fine Arts about Italian drawings, which was still Something in, you my, my, in my heart what I loved. Um, and so he had to retire from teaching. And so the only person doing drawings at the Institute was Egbert. Okay. And since Felice had just done the Rubens and Rembrandt in their century, it, it was a kind of natural transition to Dutch drawings rather than Italian. Okay, so you're, uh, I'm always interested in how people find their way to like um, Dutch art history, because yeah. that's such a specific niche within art history itself. So you're um, finding your way to Dutch art history is like half personal and half institutional. Yes, just I mean, exactly. Circumstances and and then, of course, then I loved it. Yeah. Um, and then it was also at that point that the Morgan decided to do the first of a series, actually at this point still the only, um, part in a series of collection catalogs. Yes. So she was researching the early Netherlandish and the Dutch drawings um, and coming to Europe for various research trips. Um, she was in her 70s at that point, um, you know, this was early days, there were no laptops, there, was, you know, there wasn't the internet, there was nothing digital, so my job was to carry the, the, the bag with all, you know, 375 black and white photographs. Yeah. Um, and so I came, to her, came with her um, on research trips to London and to the Netherlands, to Amsterdam, to the Air Cadet. That's special. Um, and, and, 
So you're also at this time then um, working on your dissertation at NYU. I, well, I have a confession to make. Yes. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> at that point, I was still just doing all of the coursework. Yeah. To, so I, I got my MA and I, I did all of the coursework for the PhD. In the meantime, I had met my future husband, who was a Brit, um, Nicholas Turner, who worked at the, the British Museum. And so in 1983, I got engaged. Um, and so the idea was that I would do the dissertation when I arrived in Europe, when I arrived in London. Yeah. Um, uh, so I was still absolutely full time, I mean, really full out at the, the Morgan Library and working on my job. My job for all of those collection catalogs initially, I was in charge of Provenance. So I had taught myself to read Dutch. Never took a lesson. I couldn't speak a word. Well, that's commendable. But I taught myself to read it so that when we went to the Ercade and looked up all the sale catalogs, I could read and I could find the drawings yeah. in the old sale catalogs um, and understand a little bit. But um, I remember once um, we were, I think we were at the Rijksmuseum and, and Peter Schadborn said, and he just forgot for a minute, and he looked at the both of us, and he said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, tomorrow's the state opening of parliament, and so the print will be closed. And he said it all in Dutch. And, and Miss Stumpel just turned to me, and I said, he said that this, the print was going to be closed tomorrow because it's the state opening of parliament. I thought, oh, wow, I have picked up something. Yeah. Well, that's... Um, that's... But um, pity it didn't last longer. But yeah. <laughs> struggled much later, but never mind. Oh, wow. Okay, so... So then I got married. So I abandoned, <laughs> I left the Morgan Library. Um, I arrived in London. Um, I was going to do my PhD. Um, actually, the very funny, amusing story was that we were house-sitting um, in the first few weeks um, uh, for the late Philip Pouncey, and who had this fabulous art collection. And so... I arrived, I was jet lagged. My husband went off to the British Museum to work the next morning and he locked the front door, not realizing that it, it, once it was locked from the outside, you couldn't get out. Yeah. So I woke up and said, okay, I go have a nice stroll in Holland Park and I couldn't get out of this house. And then I got a phone call from someone who wanted, needed some help at Apollo magazine and she said, and I said, oh, I'd be happy to help you. And she said, how, how soon can you start? I said, tomorrow. <laughs> Just let me out of this house. Oh. <laughs> so I started with, with, with Apollo magazine. I had already been um, contacted before I left New York um, by the people at Macmillan Publishers who were going to embark on the big... Um, Grove Dictionary of Art. Yeah. And so I had a job already part-time that I would be starting, and my job would be to commission the articles on Dutch, Flemish, and German artists, but it was only a part-time job. So I had part-time Dictionary of Art and part-time Apollo. And so the idea of the dissertation just kind of got further and further and further on the back burner. Okay. All right. So... Um... 
One of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is because you have this uh, really interesting triangle of really being involved with, um, I think, New York and yes. that world, and then also Amsterdam and also London. So yes. now that you paint this picture, I'm getting a, a better understanding of how like the, how the triangle, the triangle fits. Sort I, of it's it's I've had the most wonderful life, and it's incredibly stimulating. Um, sort of for all sorts of administrative bureaucratic. <laughs> reasons I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Do not be born in America, marry a Brit, and work in Amsterdam. Yeah. Well, and have to file taxes in three countries. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I have to file <laughs> taxes in two countries, and that's enough. So that's uh, well, commendable. But now I have a better understanding of, let's say, how you jumped to London yeah. and how you studied and, let's say, got out of Ohio and yeah. also how you're in. Um, the Netherlands, but uh, not anymore. Okay, so if you were at this point, so you left your dissertation behind. I left the dissertation behind. Um, I then very quickly was um, uh, made full-time by Macmillan Publishers for the yes. Dictionary of Art. In London. In London, and within a very short time um, for my sins, for whatever reason, I was asked to become editor of the whole project. Yeah. Um, this is the dictionary. The dictionary of art, of art. Um, which, for those who don't know, um, could you talk, so, just describe what it right, is? The dictionary, it's quite monumental. It is the dictionary <laughs> of art is a thirty-four volume, twenty-five million word encyclopedia of art that was published in nineteen ninety-six, and it's based on the extraordinary success of the Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, of which a new edition had come out in nineteen eighty. So I. When I arrived in 1984, they were thinking about what their next big project would be. Let's do um, the, do art. Um, but what very few people have a good sense of the sort of chronology of history. 1984, there was no internet. Yeah. There was no email. Yeah. There was, I mean, it just didn't exist that digital world. So we had. 6,801 contributors from 31 different countries in the world. And it was all done by snail post and, and telephone. That's amazing, first of all. I mean, I'll, I'll let you keep talking. Maybe <laughs> just, uh, I mean, I've edited some books with maybe like 10 contributors, and that's enough uh, to, to, to drive someone uh, mad. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it was an extraordinary thing. It was an extraordinary team of people, um, a wonderful experience. Um, because, um, I, I know we will get to it more, in the way, but Felice Stamfel, the curator at the Morgan, yes. had founded Master Drawings. She was the editor of Master Drawings, and one of my menial jobs, I used to have to photocopy her, hand, you know, her, her edited manuscripts. So as I turned each page, I would look with her little pencil what she did. So I learned to edit yes. simply by photocopying photocopying things, Xeroxing things at the Xerox machine. And so it, it was a skill that was already kind of, I don't know, embedded in my DNA yeah. through the experience at the Morgan. And so I loved that about the Dictionary of Art, that it was art that I loved, and it was making words work yeah. uh, in a way that you must find equally rewarding. 
I absolutely love editing and there's all these um, like invisible like frameworks that are mostly internal about yes. how you approach it and a lot of it has to do in my own opinion like with feeling yes. um, and it's I don't know it's hard to put words on it but when you're in it you you know if it works and it's, it's about it. make it's all about making it accessible yeah. and um, I used to take editors off to sort of um, kind of what you call it study workshops um, and you know the first thing I would say is you don't have to find something wrong. You know you're paid to improve it, but it doesn't mean you have to find something wrong. So don't feel you have to change it. Change it when it needs changing, when it needs improvement, when it needs clarity, when the author knows his or her subject so well that they're making that leap of of of, of knowledge. Um, so. So that was 17 years of my life. Yeah, so that was my next question. So you worked on this for, so when you were in London at 83, you said? 84, 84. I came. And then you worked on this for a it, substantial It was published in time. 1996. Okay. Um, and, then, and then we went around the world um, promoting it. Yeah. Um, and then I was still with Macmillan. And so at that time, 1996, um, you know, we did have you know, the beginnings of the internet and whatever, but there was no thought at the time of making it a digital publication or an online publication. That yeah. only came later. Um, but uh, in those, the last um, few years of the 20th century, Macmillan had decided to embark on a new edition of their music dictionary, and they wanted it to come out in the year 2000. They wanted a millennium edition. So I became the managing editor for the music dictionary as well, um, just because I was good at encouraging people and inspiring and meeting targets, yeah. all those nasty little things. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's really commendable that um, you work on a project for so long. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's also really special because I think um, something of that magnitude will probably never happen again. No, I, I think not. So it's really... Um, uh, just really special that you yeah. were I mean, it, something it, like that. That sort of collaboration, you know, 6, 000, nearly 7,000 authors of the whole world. It was extraordinary. Um, and I read in some reviews of it as well that um, it um, was rather progressive for its time because it included art outside of the Western canon. That's, uh, that's true. And the... If you imagine it as a sort of large pie or a cake and, and it was certainly divided up, we'll have so many million words for non-Western art, and then you start dividing that up to so many million words for China and so many words for um, African art or, or whatever. Yeah. That, that carving up of the cake had taken place before I joined. Um, but I suppose what I brought to the table at the time was sort of what we've just been talking about, making it accessible. So I vetted all of these very large, I mean, they're multi-part, but they go for hundreds of pages uh, on China. Um, and I would be the final green pen vetter. Yeah. Um, and if it didn't make sense to me, if I didn't understand it, then something needed to be fixed. Gotcha. So you have, um, it's often quite an, an advantage not to be the specialist. Yeah sort of have the passion and interest and curiosity, but not be the specialist. Be a bit more objective. Yeah. And so during this time, are you then still involved with master drawings? Not master, no, not at, not at that time. Um, 
That came in 2003. Okay. I got a phone call um, and saying that they wanted me to apply to be the new editor of Master Drawings. And the first thing I said, well, I'm not moving back to the States. No, 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 we've we've talked to the board and and everyone's happy for you to do it from then. And of course, by 2003, there was this thing called email and internet and all those things that, long before Zoom, but it still was possible to do it from, from England and then just go. So I then started going back to New York four times a year to go on press. Um, in the meantime, the Morgan Library had asked me. So um, when I had worked, when I worked there as as a curatorial assistant, uh, eventually an assistant curator, um, we were working on the early Netherlandish drawings and the 17th, 17th to 19th century Dutch. And only the first volume was published in the years that I was working for Macmillan's. Yes. And so. Um, all of Felice's worksheets and the notes and all of my provenance research, all my little yellow post-it stamps, um, were were still on her worksheets for the 17th century drawings, but that catalog had never been done. Okay. So I was asked to come back and finish that. Okay. So you're in London and you're working so, on a catalog. Yeah, exactly. So you sort of, these, a lot of things went in parallel. Um, and so I was asked to finished the Dutch catalog for the Morgan Library. A little bit later, I was asked to do work with um, Sir Christopher White on a catalog of the Dutch and Flemish drawings at the V&A. Yes. Um, and so, and then I became editor of Master Drawings. And those all worked extremely well in combination. And, and I was extremely happy and, and I loved it. And then the end of 2010, I got this phone call from Taco Dibbits who, by the way, one of his earliest jobs been, had been as an intern to my husband at the Getty. Oh, wow. So he knew me from way back when, um, in the 1990s. And Taco said, because um, Nicholas and I live in a very tiny little village in East Anglia, about 70 miles northeast of London. It's got 50 houses and 100 people. And Taco said, can we coax you from your rural East Anglian Italy to Amsterdam? <laughs> yeah. And I burst out laughing. I said, Taco, I haven't worked in a museum for 25 years. And it was a pause. Could be an advantage. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, and um, by then I was working on the V&A catalog. I'd also um, was working on a catalog for the Morgan Library of Dutch drawings in the collection of Chips Moore. And so I was already planning to come to um, The Hague for, to go to the Arcade to work on these two catalogs. Yeah. And so I said, okay, Taco, I'll, I'll come and talk to you. Um, and remember Nicholas drove me to the airport and I said, it's so, it's so nice and flattering at this age to be asked and fighted and, and, and to be so happy to know that I have absolutely no intention whatsoever of taking that job. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, little do we know. And yeah. then um, I sat down for tea with Taco, and the first thing he said, we don't want you to give up master drawings. And so, okay, now I'm listening. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the lovely um, tradition or, or um, whatever, uh, ability in this country to work four days a week 
um, made a big difference. Um, we live very near Stansted Airport. Stansted to Schiphol is 45 minutes by plane. Yeah. And so suddenly it, the you know, practic practicality of it became a reality. So it, it would be something that was possible. Yeah, well, so uh, uh, first of all, so you're in your headquarters in England, just <laughs> shooting off uh, reviews and articles to New York. Editing master drawings and doing collection catalogs. And, yeah. Okay. <sighs> Amsterdam. Well, then at this point, um, it sounds like you're... Um, You've like you're well. You were coming at this point, like the early two thousands. You're well known for your work mm. in catalogs, yeah. and you're well known for your institutional work and your specialization in uh, Dutch and Flemish drawings at this point. <laughs> and I, what Taco also said, which maybe was also um, true, was simply the experience of the Dictionary of Art um, meant that I had management experience, so that. It, I was, I, I was, you know, I was going to say there's something the else there. It's not just that you worked no. in the museum, and that's no. also why I wanted to speak with you because, uh, just from my own editing experience, knowing how that makes me relate to groups or people, mm. it does give you like, um, and it's up to you as an individual to express it, but it does give you the ability to see things like in a like a bird's eye view yes. perspective. Um, and I mentioned that because um, what you've sort of alluded to, uh, and now we're coming up to, is that you were the head of. I don't think we've actually said it out loud yet. <laughs> you so, were the head of the, the print room. At I, the I became yeah. So what the invitation at the end of 2010, coaxing me from my rural East Anglian Ido, was to become head of the Rights Printing Cabinet. Yeah, and that's first of all really special in itself because as we've mentioned. Drawings and prints and photography is its own specialization within art history, but also the Rijksmuseum, um, I would say, is like probably the foremost center. It is. Of, I mean, it's. It, I mean, tough. we could talk about the Getty and maybe the <laughs> Met, and they're comparable, but yeah. for Dutch and really Dutch drawings, this is the, the place to be. Um, so, I, before I get a bit deeper into your time there, how long were you actually um, in, in charge of the print room? From 2000, for nine years, from 2011 until the unfortunate arrival of COVID. Yes. So, and I remember um, Wednesday night, I'd heard something on television or on YouTube or something, and I just thought, and we'd just been to Tefaf the weekend before. And so there was the March. early out This outbreak, is March 2020. March yeah. 2020. Yeah. And, there, and we'd all heard that there had been an outbreak of, of Corona um, there. Yeah. And fortunately, no one from the Rijksmuseum got ill. Um, and Wednesday night I heard something, I thought, you know, I think this is gonna be bad. And so that Thursday morning, I thought, maybe I should pack a few more clothes to go home this weekend. Yeah. I'll pack my best pair of jeans. Um, and then, um, we, the Rijksmuseum had done, um, they, there was a, going to be a new uh, PR campaign and all the department heads were filed into the auditorium that morning 
Let's all gather in a group. No, no, no. It was going to be this video. They'd done videos. And as it turned out, I had enjoyed doing videos for the museum. Um, And I was one of the videos. And instead of this PR campaign, the directors were standing up there um, at the top of the the stage saying, right, from today, no more foreign, foreign travel. None. And so then we broke up into our little groups, and my I was part of the collector uh, sector collectie with with Taco, and I said, "But I want to fly home tonight." Yeah. And he said, "Nope, nope." So the rule is no more from. And then one of my colleagues, who was head of research, um, her partner lives in Belgium, and she said, "Well, I want to go home as well." And he, he pivoted very quickly and said, well, that's private travel. We can't stop you. So it's the no more professional, no more courier trips yeah. for the museum. Yeah. And so I went, flew home on the 12th of March, Thursday night, the 12th of March, 2020, never imagining that I would never go back. Never imagining. And you just didn't, you just didn't. Well, I mean, at, then we all worked for home for, for a very long time. And when it became clear to me that it was a long-term situation, I, I just said to Taka, look, I will graciously step aside whenever you like, because it's clear that I'm not going to be able to resume flying twice a week yeah. um, anytime soon. Um, and I went, oh, no, 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 I don't want to talk about it. Everyone's working from home. And there was that little sort of break in August of 2020, when it opened up just a little bit, and he went to Sicily for his holiday. And I think being in Italy, where it had had been so bad early on, he realized what was coming. coming. Um, And um, bless him, I got a phone call the 1st first of September. How soon can I have your salary? And I said, Taco, I said, I'd go as soon as you. How about the end of the month? Okay, fine. And, but also, I'm so grateful to him because what I said, um, because I was a year or two away from retirement. It's, it wasn't a big thing for me. Um, but there were so many young people that were still on, on those temporary renewable contracts. Yeah. Um, and I said, please use my salary to keep some of the young people. And he did. Yeah. And he did. That's very commendable yeah. of you. So, um, and um, so I remain. I'm a Fry Villager, a, a volunteer. Yeah. Um, so, um, I still keep in touch and, and have a lot of um, contact still yeah. with my colleagues. I miss my colleagues. Don't miss the um, you know, yearly budget. <laughs> I don't. No, the commute wasn't too bad. It's the it's the bureaucracy of museum life, which just gets worse for everyone in every museum around the world. Um, so year plans and budgets and whatever, and yeah, endless yeah. meetings that I'm, I don't miss that, but yeah. I do miss my colleagues. I miss the people. The Rex Museum is really a behemoth of an institution. Yeah. So I can imagine there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, yeah. clicking that you don't yeah. see. Um, so we quickly shot from your starting at the Rijksmuseum to the end. But if we go back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you started at the Rijksmuseum um, before it reopened. I did, 2011. Um, what, I think the really fun part for me, um, because I was a 
native English speaker because of my editorial experience. Yeah. My job in the year and a half until it reopened, I vetted, checked, vetted, and corrected the English translations for all 8,000 etiquette text labels in the new museum. Oh, wow. So, which is a wonderful way of, you know, <laughs> Just, instant immersion yeah, yeah. into the collection. Um, and that was enormously fun and, and stimulating. That was my biggest question is, um, um, like, what were you busy with before the reopening? Yeah, I, um, and the, so the museum, so the, a part of the museum was still open. The print room. I was going to say, were you in the actual print room? No. Well, so the the print room and the uh, the solander boxes with um, and the curatorial offices were in a building on Franz von Meerstadt. Yes. Um, and so people could still come to the print room to look at drawings and prints. Okay. Um, so that never closed gotcha. per se. Um, it's just you know the the big museum um, was closed for all those years. Yeah. Um, I only visited the museum uh, previously before it opened in 2013, um, once or twice as a tourist. Mm. Uh, so that's also why I asked. I wasn't familiar with uh, what was open or yeah. any of that. Um, and in general, so when you're dealing with such um, an institution that has such a large collection like that, um, before I get into where you started beyond the labels, um, what does I lost my train of thought? Excuse me. But that's all right. Um, so uh, maybe a way to reframe it. Um, is there anything that the museum being closed afforded you as someone who's in charge of um, this section of the museum? It could be no. Yeah. Um, just not. Not really, um, because certain decisions some of which are controversial to colleagues in the world of paper. Um, before the museum closed, there was a permanent gallery with exhibitions of works on paper. So yeah. year-round, a, a large dedicated print room gallery. So you have exhibitions of 100 objects or something. That doesn't exist anymore. So in the, say, in, the, in the new um, layout, there are five little cabinet rooms um, five cabinets where you, we can display you know, eight to 12 works on paper. And, and those change a few times a year yeah. because works of paper can't be exposed to light. Um, and then we, we pitch ideas for the, the big major exhibitions uh, along with all of our colleagues from paintings and decorative arts and history. So everything that goes on in the Phillips wing of, yeah. of um, temporary exhibitions, um, we we compete with our colleagues. Gotcha. Um, and so when the museum then opens again in 2013, at this point, um, the museum's website is also redone at the same time. And I mentioned that because it's about uh, digital publishing yeah. or making the collection accessible. accessible. So can you talk about, um, and maybe... Uh, there's nothing here, I don't know. But can you talk about um, your involvement with um, the presentation or how that no, might have gotten set up? And not, they, it, it was a separate team called PECO Online, Print and Cabinet Online. Um, 
to uh, digitize and catalog all the works on paper. So there was a lot of um, collaboration with the curators in the um, RPK, but it was a separate team doing just that. Um, and so I didn't have any specific uh, experience with that. Okay. Well, I just asked because I think um, just as a researcher, the Rex Museum's oh, website is like a like <laughs> well, treasure trove of accessible information. And, and you imagine me also still editing master drawings in my little tiny village in you know um, North Essex. That online catalogs of museum collections is manna for heaven from heaven for me. Yeah. I could imagine. <laughs> yeah. So what, what I was more involved with, and, and that really has um, been one of the things, is that there, if you go to the Rijksmuseum website, there will be um, an object description for almost everything, and almost everything um, has been um, photographed. But what we're also trying to do are the permanent collection catalogs, the Bestandskatalogi. Yeah. And, and that's a separate sort of page on the, the website. And then that gives you a more in-depth, complete catalog entry. Um, and, and that has been, so the first one we did um, was on Rembrandt's birthday in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, we did all of the Rembrandt drawings. So we updated the entries from Peter Schatborn's 1985 catalog. Yes. Um, then we started doing all, all other 17th century Dutch drawings, and that's just an ongoing, growing project. Yeah. And since then, my colleagues, Hauken um, Leifkland did um, Hercules Sagers, the Surimono prints, Japanese prints are now yeah. online. So it's, there are a growing number of collection catalogs um, on the Rijksmuseum website. Um, to go back a little bit further, so... Um, when Taco asked you to become the head of the print room and you accept it, can you talk about what you inherited in terms of, um, you just alluded to it a bit, in terms of Peter Shackborn and mm. what he had done? So what did you inherit uh, in terms of Bastanda catalogus? Was that the, some of the, your main... The collection catalogs, there had been an idea of, of completing them. So the last one before my arrival um, was in 1998, and it was Marijn Schapelhaumen and Peter Schapborn, yeah. um, Dutch drawing artist born before 1601, I think it is. Um, and then it, it, around the year 2000, they, there was a small team of people who were writing um, entries, but then I suppose with the closing of the museum and everything, this, it, just, it was a project that never went much further. So the texts um, from the year 2000 still exist in okay. Dutch. They hadn't ever been translated. So now when we, my team and I started working on them, um, we started translating and updating the and, and writing new texts. Yeah. And I suppose one of my my main so I followed in the in the steps uh, not of Peter but of Gerlauten, who's a extremely charismatic, larger than life figure. I mean, it's a terrible sort of pair of shoes to try to fill. Um, what I focused on was I love mentoring younger people. So um, we started with Ger, um, a, a, a junior curator exchange program with Custodia. I believe one of your um, early guests on this podcast was Marlene Ram, was, was the first, just say first junior curator to yes. go to Paris from us. Yes. Um, 
I, I love mentoring younger people and involving them in, in the cataloging and, and so forth. And that's been really, really stimulating. Um, it's, you have to find your own sort of natural groove and um, editing the Bestandskatalogi, mm -hmm. editing and mentoring and teaching has been my my great joy. That's that's what I'm most, I'm still doing the edit, so I still edit the, the online catalog um, as a volunteer, but I do miss the day-to-day the -day mentoring. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Marlene had uh, great things to say about you, so it's very clear that you're a, a mentor, and I think um, just from researching that, I can see that in your work as well, and you can really tell that the people that you've mentored under the print room have really um, succeeded and are doing yeah. uh, really interesting it's, it's things. Very, very, one feels very proud. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, to stick with the print room a bit more, can you talk about how you have to deal with the division of um, Dutch uh, items uh, in relation to the, the non-Dutch, let's say? Because it is the Rijksmuseum, but there is, for instance, Watteau, French. Uh, yeah. The, the drawings, drawings collection is much more Dutch-focused. Yes. So the print collection is very international. Okay. And the same thing for the photography collection. Yeah. Um, they're going to be, I think, next year, year, maybe year after, a big exhibition of American photography, mm -hmm. which is, it will be huge, and, and, and great, great, great American photography. So, the, in a way, the print room, more than almost any other department in the Rijksmuseum, is international. Yeah. Um, it's just the drawings department is more focused on Dutch, and so that, when we start to do a collection catalog, that's where one carries on. Um, there, when one's pitching um, an exhibition, um, I mean, for instance, at, at some point, I, mean, I don't know when early on, I had worked out that 2019 would be the 350th anniversary of Rembrandt. It's like, like, you know, why don't we do a Rembrandt drawing show? Yeah. Um, and so, but the Dutch is always going to be the more popular choice. Yeah, of course. And it's not something that one wants to fight um, because it is what it is. And it's for the audience here and it's for the tourist audience. That's what they come to see. Yeah. Um, but. There are plenty of opportunities with the prints and with the photographs um, to um, widen our perspective a bit. Yeah, well, that's also why I asked, just because, I mean, it's the Rijksmuseum, so obviously there's an emphasis on Dutch, but just in general, you know, how you deal with the other aspects of the collection, that's um, which is something I'm And I'm for instance, the curator of drawings, none of the curators of drawings um, are particularly assigned to, all right, you're in charge of French drawings, you're in charge of Italian drawings, you're just, they're, they're kind of um, period specific. So you have curators of 16th and 17th century drawings, you have curator of 18th and 19th century drawings, yeah. but he has to do French and Italian and whatever else might be lurking in those boxes. Yeah, makes sense. So you're, um, what I think is really interesting about art history is that if you can really find someone that believes in you and you believe in them, 
um, there is like a, a chain of mentorship that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, maybe with you, that starts with um, Egbert Havakon Begman, mm -hmm. who was really instrumental in fostering the study of Netherlandish art in New York and, and, and everywhere in the States. Yeah. yeah. And um, so you're in that chain of uh, mentorship with him. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned it a little bit uh, in relation to your time at the print room. Can you talk about the importance of um, like mentorship in the most general sense? I, I think the most important one was the program of exchange with um, Custodia. But one of the, the most fun things is that I started a, a series of masterclasses. And this was later, the second one I think was funded by the Getty Paper Project, but it was a way of um, broadening that out to more people. So um, I have, would have like six senior people and invite 20 younger people from the British Museum, from the Getty, from Cleveland, from Harvard, from, from all over and um, pick a topic, bring them here, um, start with a morning of um, talks from the senior people, then set them tasks, put them into little groups, and then they had to present on the next day. And it was just so much fun. So the um, first one was about um, reworked drawings, opgewerkt. So it's an issue. So they're, they're basically connoisseurship masterclasses. Yeah. So, you know, you can't teach somebody in a couple of days, you know, what makes a Rembrandt drawing, but you can teach them skills at how to look at certain issues to do with drawings. And there's a great tradition in, uh, especially in the 18th century in, with among Dutch drawings of reworking them. Yeah. Verbatering. So you, you improve, you make it better. And they're so proud, they sort of inscribe it on the back of the drawing. This was drawn by so-and-so in 1640 and improved, verbatert, nor somebody else. Yeah. And, it, and I find that a fascinating um, concept because we're so um, pristine. We want something that's pure and not been touched. And you know, a piece of furniture can't have a you know a new leg or something like that. Whereas, the idea of improving something was something they were deeply proud of. Mm -hmm. So that was the first master uh, connoisseurship master class. Then the second one we did was about um, copies, autograph replicas, and fakes. Oh well. And so you have multiple versions of something and. You probably never heard of this. And then in the 80s or 90s, there was um, a, a cookery program on British telly called Ready Steady Cook. And the concept was you had two, two rival cooks, and they were both given a bag of random ingredients, and they had to turn this into a meal, sort of whatever. And then the audience, they had little flags. They had a, a red tomato or a green pepper. And so they voted at the end for which meal they would most likely to have eaten. So I had this game, mm -hmm. and so for weeks I made with um, ton depressors and little cutouts of red tomatoes and green peppers. So I gave all the people, and so then we put up on the screen the two versions. Okay, who thinks, you know, A, if you think A, the green tomato one is the original. And so we played this game. And I just love making learning 
fun. Ideally, it should be. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you're doing these classes then in the in the print room. In the print room. Okay. You well, know, they were because they were large. They were in the auditorium or the atelier Gobau. Yeah. yeah. So you're really fostering. Um, I mean, beyond the actual day-to-day -day work and the, let's say catalog and creating, you're really, I think, fostering like a hub of. It's a hub of learning and and look different ways of of learning about drawings and for younger people also networking because you know at the time that I, I retired I was president of something called the 50 Lux Club which is the international international committee for keepers of public collections of graphic arts or so I can't remember if it's a long title yeah but it's the head of print rooms around the world so the okay. 50 um, print rooms are there, they meet every couple of years. I mean, and it's a wonderful, you know, very important network. Well, young people don't get that opportunity yeah. to network. But if you bring the young ones from Los Angeles and New York and London and Paris and Antwerp and whatever together, that's also part of the learning experience for them. Well, it sounds like you're really. Um um, a true servant leader, as they call it, if you're familiar with the, the, the brand of leadership called servant leadership, yeah. where it's your job to get everybody else oh, to that's, the pinnacle. That's what makes us editors, my yes. dear. We're facilitators. <laughs> we make other people's words Yeah, improve. It's shine, your job to shine, get them to get them It's to the not best about us. It's about making other people shine. Yeah. Well, that's really special then as well. And also, if you're combining it, um, that's why I want to speak with you as well, because... Um, Prints and drawings are such a specific um, underdale or a section of art history. And one of the things that makes it special is that you can really get up. Um, yeah, it's the intimacy of it. You hold it in your hand. That yeah. intimacy, seeing, um, getting inside the head of the artist. Yeah. Um, and that was what was so wonderful in, in 2019 uh, about the um, all the Rembrandt show at the Rijksmuseum. And you know, I would do all these tours, and and you can you know you show them what Rembrandt was thinking at the time, what he was struggling, what made him laugh, what made him what made him sigh, sad. Why did he do all these landscapes? You know, just after um, poor Saskia died, because he was obviously depressed and just needed to blow off steam and walk in the countryside and and make beautiful landscape drawings. So um, one of the um, uh, a journalist at the time said to me, oh, it's such a pity we can't interview Rembrandt. And I said, he still speaks you to us through his can. drawings. You yeah. don't, well, we do still need him, but, but drawings speak to us in a more direct way than a painting, in my opinion. Uh, well, that's also uh, one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is because, um, um, I mean, I'm more focused on paintings, but what I, the few times I've been in the print room myself to study, for instance, like Sonra Doms, mm. I'm always amazed that um, someone is letting me look at something yes. this old, this close to me, but also it's really, um, I don't have that connoisseurship or the knowledge of looking at drawings or prints that same way. Um, and I guess what I'm trying, uh, where I'm trying to go with this is, can you talk about, like to back up a little bit, um, what being involved with um, art on this deep level, not only on an administrative basis, but on a practical basis, develops within you over time? Um, because it is so like intimate. Mm. Um, and beyond, like, an, I, I'm, 
I think I'm asking a bit beyond like connoisseurship, yeah. like beyond the ability, but just very abstractly. I, in I think a way, it's so if fascinating. You, um, you know, there's been a great trend in um, museums in the last decade or so um, to tell stories. So storytelling more than art historical. Yeah, and of course that was that was one of the um, instructions by Vim Pivas at the time the reopening of the museum and that the labels he said I don't want any art historical rimrams none of this mm -hmm. jargon um, and I I believe that there is this this medium center way that combines both that is art historically accurate and accessible and fun and that's um, in a way Sometimes I get irritated by the fact, oh, now we must tell stories. Well, of course, we've always wanted to tell stories. And, and that's the way you bring art to life, especially old art. You bring it to life for modern art audiences. Um, and so, um, yeah, that trend, his, oh, you know, I won't call it a historical trend, that trend, and it's, it's become so... Um, um, pervasive now and and it's moved also in a different direction very important direction to tell stories that haven't been told before you know some uncomfortable stories there's that um, section as well so yeah. but I love the idea of telling stories I just I just absolutely love it um, and I know why something is you know moves me and I, it makes me you know beautiful or it, or it, it is beautiful um, or it makes me cry, something like that. But I see the job of uh, a museum employee to make, to share that experience and find ways of sharing that experience with other people. Um, and, and sometimes it's very funny. One of uh, the, the most fun I had with an exhibition, where there was a discovery of drawings of Brazilian animals that were found in the um, Archiv in, in um, Harlem and by Franz Post. I was going to say Franz Post, yeah. And until that point, there were like five drawings known by him, none of the, the animals, and all of these animals related to his paintings. So. Um, and it was a great, great, great discovery by Alexander de Brown. He approached me because he wanted to write about them for Master Drawings, and then he invited me to come and see them. And as soon as I saw them, I thought, we've got to, and they don't have an exhibition space. Right, I think we must do this for the Rijksmuseum. And then he had the brilliant solution, uh, suggestion that um, uh, Naturalis, the Natural History Museum in Leiden was closed at the time. Why don't you ask to borrow the stuffed specimens yeah. that relate to the drawings. Great idea. And, but in the sort of discussions about how to install this, there was, um, there was a suggestion made that they should be on very large, tall perspex stands so that the little animal was looking into the eyes of the, the creature um, framed and hanging on the wall. That's fun. And, which is a very amusing view, but I said, no, they have to be low. This is for families and kids. And I said, Jane, you care too much about your audience. <laughs> well, that's, that's... And, but it was so much fun, and they were on low tables. And just after it opened um, was the weekend 
of that the program that um, occurs every year here taken and draw draw so every visitor to the museum is given a little sketchbook and a pencil when they walk in the door yeah and you had kids on the floor with their little sketchbook drawing these things it was fantastic this is um the show that um there were like uh, ants and bugs um yeah. all over the museum yeah. if i'm correct yeah yeah, okay. yeah. so uh, in addition to the animals that related to, there were 34 drawings, so you had the tapir and the llama and the whatever. Um, but they, because Naturalis was closed and had all these things available, yes. so we had them out. So there was a lion over the arch of, by the by the cafe, and and you know they were in in the. Um, in the tunnel, so people riding through the tunnel um, on I their remember. bicycles yeah. know, had there were animals in the inside the window. It was great, wow. great. Well, I think that's um, one of the special things that an institution such as the Rijksmuseum offers you is the ability to branch out and connect with other institutions yeah. to sort of collaborate. And it sounds like you uh, take pleasure in that I as well. I absolutely do. Um, can you talk about as well in relation to the print room um, when you're doing exhibitions like this, how you might um, zoom in on what's missing from such a, a large collection? Um, you have the Dutch part, the drawings. Um, how do you, or maybe you don't, but did yeah. you actively search out for acquisitions? Um, was that something that you were focused on the the curators of prints certainly did that because they their um, aim is to make as encyclopedic a collection as possible yeah and there were funds from um, that have been around for about 80 or 90 years so they had a good fund the waller funds um, to buy that it enabled them to be um, quite competitive on the print market the drawings it's much more difficult um, it's a relatively new collection of drawings, so it's not as old as you know something somewhere like the Louvre or Vienna. The Albertina yeah. has a much older and actually larger collection. Yeah. Um, so um, the unfortunate thing about drawings, um, especially once the Getty entered the um, the scene they've become very expensive, and so it's it's very hard to compete. We can't compete for drawings acquisitions as well as my curators of prints could. Gotcha. Um, so um, when chats were sold, um, they had uh, 25 drawings that were um, came from the Flink collection, the, the son of uh, Rembrandt's pupil Colbert Flink. Um, the most beautiful, beautiful landscape drawings. And in 1984, a group of them were sold. Um, and I think the Rijksmuseum is the only important museum in the world didn't, that didn't get a Chatsworth drawing. Oh. <laughs> that was before my time. But I mean, it's, 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 it's hard. Um, and one just accepts that. And um, so I think my choice was to prioritize other things, prioritize yeah. training, prior, prioritize um, working with young, young curators, inspiring young curators, cataloging what we have, making the exhibitions fun, making the, the labels fun. Yeah. Well, that's also why I asked, just because I've studied um, <clears throat> museum directors in my own art history yes. trajectory, and I find it really interesting to look back at periods of time to see how people sort of like left their their stamp, their stamp on um, 
an organization yeah. or a piece of the organization? Yeah. And it really sounds a like hair was is it was a great um, acquisitor, and especially once he went to Fondation Custodia in this Paris. Hair Lauten. I didn't have, I didn't have the resources, so it, there's was, no point in trying to com compete with that. Was he involved in like um, acquisitions a lot? Oh, before, or? yes, yes. So very, he was really much. no, it's okay. very, very, um, and um, but for instance, we we did do we did well at um, there were a series of exhibitions from the collection of Van Rijk van Altena, who had been mm -hmm. one of the early directors of the museum. I mean, of the uh, print room. Um, and the first sale was 2015. Um, so, yeah, through the Fianniga Rembrandt, we did well on that. But yeah. um, other than those really special occasions, um, the, the, there's money for prints and there's money for photog photographs and there's less money for drawings. drawings. Gotcha. So focus on other things. Yeah. Make them... Yeah. No, yeah. Well, it's just uh, it's, uh, uh, um, it's just where don't, you chose yeah, to focus. Yeah, exactly. Don't yeah. don't spend spend waste your tears. No, uh, and because you've mentioned it, and because um, I am not so familiar with him, but I know that he's really important, and I never had um, the opportunity to meet him. Uh, important to the field, and certainly mentorship. Can you speak about Herr Lauten in relation to? Um, your personal relationship with him, but also the Rijksmuseum in relation to the Foundation Custodia, mm -hmm. because you've mentioned, for instance, Marlene, and I know that she was there as, um, I believe, you, an intern. No, or... So what it is, it's a, it's a two-year, a formal two-year program yeah. that Cher and I devised. Yes. Um, and it's a junior curatorship, and they spend one year with us and one year in Paris. Yeah. And then they swap. So we, at each time, every two years, we interview and choose two people and one starts in Paris and one starts in Amsterdam and then and they, they swap okay and they swap um, as I said already he was an immense pair of shoes to try to fill so he was um, the director at the foundation he was the director of the Fondation Custodia my favorite hair story um, we've just done a, an issue of master drawings in his memory and I wrote a little editor with my favorite story and um, we sat down for lunch when, before I had officially accepted to take the job. And, um, or, no, that's not true, I'm sorry. It was after we had both, I had had a whole day of psychometric tests to make sure that I wasn't an ax murderer. And he'd had the same thing in Paris. So okay. we were having this lunch comparing stories about, you know, all these, these tests that we'd been given. And, but his one of the thing that he remembered most is his whatever interviewer said asked him to rate all of his previous jobs. So uh, as a print curious assistant curator of prints at the Boymans in Rotterdam, nine and a half. As being hired as a curator of prints at the the Rijksmuseum, nine and a half. Um, being head of the Rijks printing cabinet, ten. Mm -hmm. And the man said to him, why on earth are you leaving? And he said, quick as a flash, because I believe in 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's And that really summarizes hair. He yeah. had passion, enthusiasm, curiosity, just exuding all of those things. And he, he lived life 
as an 11. So he left to become um, director of Custodia, and then there was actually a two-year gap when they hadn't hired somebody. Um, and then um, someone came up with my name, hence the phone call to from Taco, can we coax you? So I was not an obvious, you know, when he left, it would never have occurred to me to apply for the job. And I was um, not a um, straightforward, obvious candidate or choice. Yeah. So it was, it was an um, out-of-the-box thinking um, for yeah, someone who hadn't been in a museum for 25 years. But well, you very much enjoyed being back even for my only short nine years. <laughs> yeah, and you definitely um, took over his tradition of, um, well, it sounds like, uh, just from meeting you today, like um, outpouring enthusiasm and yeah. really... Uh, one of the things I find interesting about art history is that as art historians, we're not the artist. Yeah. So there's a layer between us and what we're dealing with. And I find that... Um, uh, when you meet someone, whether it's a professor, head of a print room, a student, uh, a curator, and they can have that energy that's enthusiastic and makes it um, about the art, but in a way that's like, um, like an outpouring of energy. It, yeah. And then you just, mm. you just, your cup is overflowing, mm. and that's how you really get other people. Um, in your case, mentoring, but that's how you really enthusiasm and create like an energy around it. Because again, there's that distance between the art and what you're dealing with. So mm -hmm. if you, I find that when people can really enthuse and infect and make yeah. other people as enthusiastic as themselves, then you really have an energy that's... No, it's... And because if you take the general population, our audience, fewer people will have... Um, even first-hand experience of drawings at all. So they don't know how to look at them. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges and what is fun. And that's what I enjoyed most of all about doing the tours, um, uh, the Rembrandt show, is, you know, showing them, look at, look at that detail. My favorite Rembrandt drawing in the museum is the um, pancake maker. And you have this little old woman sort of hunched over her stove making yeah. pancakes. And then this boy, obviously wants a pancake and he's digging in his pocket and he can't find his coin and you see that just with these few pen strokes how he can convey that frustration of the boy you know i know i have i know i have a coin i know i have a style i want you know it's down here just you know give me and it's just it's magic it's if you can magic find a way to make somebody else see that and get equally as enthused you almost like you ex you, to be able to elicit within somebody else the ability to see what you see and spark that joy within them, I yeah. think, is one of the most rewarding things about art in general. And also, in your case, mentorship, that you can ignite that passion it's, in other people. It really is. And you, you see it. And that's, what, that's why it's not just the intimacy that you can hold the drawing, but that there's a... Um, an avenue, a, a roadway into the artist's thinking yeah. on paper that you don't get in any other, practically any other art form because it's it's the finished product, product that, you know, all the, the errors and the mistakes 
uh, rubbed out. Yeah. And in a drawing, the mistakes are still there. They haven't been rubbed out. And then, I mean, that's so, um, one of my, I've just been working on uh, updating an entry um, for this catalog of um, Chips More that I explained, the Dutch drawings catalog I did just before I, I joined. And he has a study for the um, 100 Gilder print, and it's a woman. And then we at the Rijksmuseum have a study of, there are two studies of the same woman. And then Berlin has the woman in the context of a few more figures. And you see what he was thinking about, because you have these little, little sketches of the face, and then there's just one kind of line in the cheek that might be two millimeters long. And it's just, it suddenly makes you have this gaunt face. But then all the rest of it, he's working on the pose. So the one that belongs to Chips Moore, she's sitting there, and she has her hands raised in prayer. And you're kind of thinking, all right, maybe she wouldn't have had enough energy to do that. So the first study on the left of the Rijksmuseum one, she's got her hands down in her lap, mm -hmm. okay? And then he's thinking, all right, well, you know, you've got this big composition, she's got to sort of attract Christ's attention to heal her, healing of the sick. So then he starts the second one and the hands are still down in her lap. And then he does a sort of pentiment, a change, and he raises her left hand. All right, so by the time you get to the Berlin drawing and then the final etching, that hand is no longer raised, but it comes down. And you kind of see this woman as if her last ounce of energy still there. is just please. And that you see in a sequence of drawings. And to be able to tell that story to someone, yeah. I think it tells us about Rembrandt, it tells us about his humanity, and uh, it just gives me chills. <laughs> That's one of the fascinating things about drawings compared to paintings. Uh, whenever I go into a temporary exhibition at the Rijksmuseum, it, you can almost like smell the varnish on the, the paintings because yeah. they've been perfectly restored. Yeah. And that's a quality in itself, but that's also, you could do a whole podcast, but that's what makes um, uh, looking at prints and the way they change over time in series and also drawings is the trace. And then not only the ability to look at that in the present, but then to reflect on that and write about it is mm. its own unique skill set in itself. Mm. So that's um, fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, because I watched um, a video of you from Code Art in 2018, where you're talking about um, how collections have changed and how curators these days are really, you've mentioned it a bit already, but um, expected to do much more than oh, yeah. just write and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, read. But uh, you say as a profession that's drowning in books that curators um, have a lot more to do than just um, behind mm -hmm. the scenes, yeah. bury themselves in library yeah. stacks. Um, just to look forward a little bit, could you talk about um, so if curators these days have the task of not only looking after collections and studying them and writing about them, you mentioned in the same talk that curators are expected to be um, almost like actresses or actors yeah. and uh, make videos. Make and, videos. And, and I mean, my goodness, that, that came absolutely to a head during COVID lockdown because all these museums yeah. worked out that the way they, they had to still engage with their audience. Yeah. And the only way to do that was digitally. Yeah. So videos have skyrocketed and in relation to storytelling um do you think that um 
I mean, just to look forward and forecast, do you think that that's something that's going to stick around in relation to the way art is presented to the public? Like, will that get more important I, in your own personal I view? Do, I do think it will stick around um, because it enables the museum to reach every corner of the globe. Yeah. And so people who can't um, get to Amsterdam, the poor people who haven't been able to get a ticket to see Vermeer can listen to Stephen Fry for an hour. I've not been, I must admit. <laughs> um, so I think that it is a way of broadening the, the, the approach and, and the um, scope of uh, contact. Yeah. Um, what I think there was a worry, um, goodness knows, I don't know when this date was, but it was the time when, um, oh, what's his name, who started um, Microsoft. Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates, thank you. Um, he bought the Codex, Leonardo's Codex Leicester. Yeah. And he was also trying to invent systems for so that people could um, produce digital images in their homes so that you could choose to have a picture of the night watch, you know, projected onto your walls. And, you know, this was very early on. And there was a huge... Um, fear, risk that, you know, this would make people less likely to come to museums to yes. see the artwork in the original. And and that that debate then got sort of um, extended on to whether or not online collect museums should um, provide their collections online. Yeah. Because this will this, you know, obviate the need to come to and it hasn't. It hasn't at all. And so I see those videos um, as a way still of attracting attention and engaging the public. Would I like them maybe to be more than a minute and a half? Yeah. I think it can sometimes, I mean, in the same way that, you know, Twitter and all these things, you know, just reduces things to the lowest, 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 least whatever um, informative. But um, yeah, I started doing um, a crazy series of videos for the museum called Jane's Addiction, yes, Reich's I, Museum. I've watched a few. <laughs> and they're three and a half minutes. And you can tell a really good story in three and a half minutes. Yeah. So um, I think that's, that's something that, that will continue. Um, but I think there will always be the desire for people to come and see the things in the flesh and firsthand. Yeah, there's no real substitute for that. No, there isn't. There isn't. No, in my own research of museums, um, when you go back in the early 2000s, um, like annual reports and things will say, like, um, visit our website where our paintings are available to look at 24-7. Yes. So it's also quaint how it's changed. But yeah. I think looking back at these like uh, late 2010s uh, corona times, it'll be like um, like a foundation of what curators will sort of look at 20 years from now, how they did it. Yeah. And I'm sure it'll get more professionalized. Yeah. And oh, it will. I mean, maybe. it's exactly. Um, and, you know, it's the same thing with podcasts. I mean, what's what you're doing yes. is, is reaching out <laughs> too in a, in a digital format yeah. to, you know, um, share, share stories about people involved in the art world. 
It's exactly what you're doing. Well, the reason I started this is because there's so many interesting people like yourself working um, in these really important positions, institutions that are doing so much, uh, not only for the community, but also for the public. But I think a format like this is um, uh, it's fascinating for me because um, uh, speaking with people like you have mm -hmm. so much interesting information and experiences to share that usually otherwise aren't um, asked about or yeah. presented. And I think that's, that's its own unique part of art history that... Um, and it's a, the, the video that you mentioned from 2018, was that a the code art one, yeah. I think? Okay. Yeah. So I was asked, I was, my specific task was how has the museum, uh, the, the role of the curator changed in 40 years? Yes. And, you know, it's extraordinary how it's changed, how much it's changed. From photocopying. Um, by photocopying. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure, you know, in that thing, I remember saying that, so, so I worked for Felice Stamfel, who was in her 70s. I called her Miss Stamfel. Yeah, you never, ever, ever <laughs> called her Felice. Um, and originally, my first, you know, I arrived day one, I had a manual typewriter. And, and there was an O that kind of stuck. And so if you hit it too hard, it punched a hole through the paper. So I would bring the letters through to her and she would hold them up to the light to see. And if there was a hole, I had to do it all over again. Oh, wow. Then came a miracle of miracles, an electric typewriter with one line of memory. So you could type the whole line and go back and make the... Oh my goodness, a word processor, the fir very first word processors. And I mean, all of that's been in my lifetime. And then the internet and then oh, Zoom. So the ways of sharing information has just exploded exponentially. Um, and some of it is still traditional. We still pr print master drawings as a printed journal. But when COVID came, we offered an online digital version and we offered it free to everyone, to yeah. the whole world. So you didn't have to be a subscriber. So that was our gift to lockdown, yeah. was to introduce a, a digital version. And now we have both. So people who subscribe to the printed journal also have access to a digital version. So I've just signed off, on checked all of the web links, um, URLs, for the um, summer issue, which goes online tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So, um, yeah. that, you know, we're blessed to be alive in a period where you have both. You know, traditional still firsthand experience, the original art, art objects, also digital ways of getting, learning more about them. Yeah, you've really um, seen uh, it completely transform. Yeah. And um, to take that knowledge and put it on master drawings to sort of um, conclude, um, what have you seen change about master drawings um, since you've been the editor in terms of um, this sort of maybe digital switch? And then just looking forward, where to, what do you have um, planned for master drawings uh, um, in the near future? Uh, so the, it had started to change. Um, I joined in 2003. Um, but already they were starting to do a little bit more modern and contemporary drawing. So I mean, that was something very different from the time that it was um, founded in 1963. For sure. Um, it's, that's actually quite challenging because 
people don't write about drawings in that field as easily as they do in seventeenth you know, or eighteenth century. So yeah. it's a, it's a challenge to get the material, um, but when when we do have it, it's it makes it more interesting and and diverse, whatever. But there's just in the way that um, drawings scholarship has changed. It's no longer just about, I've discovered this drawing in Bremen and it's a study for this altarpiece in the second chapel oh, of the yeah, church or whatever. Of so 80s and it, 90s, like rediscovery. Exactly. And, so yeah. I mean that's I mean we do still have that, but we have more about um, collectors um, and the purposes of art or a focus on a technique or something like that. So it's a, that's a broader range of approaches yeah. to scholarship and drawings. That's fascinating. What do you foresee the, the 20s and 30s um, entailing for the, the fields of Dutch art? Um, uh, to give like a footnote to that, um, you're specialized in drawings, uh, large publishing projects. A lot of the 2010s, in my own opinion, were about like, putting collections online, making knowledge accessible. So what do you foresee some of the, um, the main, I don't want to call it like challenges or obstacles? Well, I mean, there are challenges. Um, <laughs> we once had, we had a, 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 saying, a saying at the yeah, Dictionary of Art, um, so, you know, we don't have problems, we have, we have opportunities. <laughs> um, To keep people interested in old art, to make old art still resonate mm -hmm. and more um, relevant is perhaps not the right word, but um, if you if you look at the market, the the, lar the biggest money now is in modern and contemporary art. So you, you see it in the auction houses. There are fewer sales, or the, the, the content of the sales is different than it was 30 years ago. So the old masters remains a, a challenge. And then you get a Vermeer exhibition when the, the tickets sell out on the second day. So I mean, I, I'm um, optimistic about the, the future, yeah. um, and it's just a way of presenting it in a way that is um, life-enhancing, moving, motivational, inspirational, I don't know, teaches you what. So um, I think the, the biggest challenge for museums is, you know, you have, take the success of Vermeer and, and you being interested in Franz Hals know that, you know, we're come, there's going to be a Franz Hals um, exhibition at the Rijksmuseum. Um, and it's quite easy to get the public in for the big names. Yeah. What slightly gets lost are some of the, the secondary themes uh, or secondary artists or whatever. So, in the past, they would have been the subject of major monographic shows themselves. And the finances are such that that may or may not be the right answer. On the other hand, they're also the, the directors of the Museum of the Worlds are facing challenges is, you know, or questions, should this art actually be traveling to all these places? And oh, yeah. So there are, are big issues that um, museums have to face in the future. Um, 
I just want to keep, I want to keep my little old master drawing still sort of the subject of interest and curiosity and, and love and passion. And, and there's certainly a group. And, and you see that with, with the young curators. You see that with these master classes. You see that with students. You know, there is still a lot of interest in that topic. Um, and that makes me very happy. Yeah, well, that's um, well said. Um, well, Jane, I want to thank you um, for making the time to speak with me. Um, I've um, tangentially, um, unbeknownst to you, been following your work for <laughs> maybe 10 years or so, because uh, one of my first experiences in the Rijksmuseum uh, was as a student in mm -hmm. 2014, and that was very special. And I've um, taken a few trips back to the, the print room since then, but I've um, known about your work since then. So I think, um, um, so I want to thank you for speaking with me, um, because I think there's so much beyond the way that you ran that part of the Rijksmuseum that could make for like a whole series of podcasts. Mm. But um, thank you for telling me about your time, um, coincidentally, exactly. being born in Cincinnati. Exactly. <laughs> and you walk along the streets, along the canal with the little red, red shutters, and I think, someone is paying me to have this life and be here. And aren't we lucky? Yeah. Cincinnati natives. I know. Well, it's really special that we're here in Amsterdam together. And I've really enjoyed learning about your time um, from your childhood in Ohio, getting to New York, how you got to London, how you came to Amsterdam, uh, back to London on the weekends, and now you're back in Amsterdam. So thanks for making the time to speak with me. And I think I think it's really special and really important that you um, take an approach to your work that not only gives you uh, personal joy in doing it yourself, but it expands and imparts that joy on others in a way that creates a community around your field. Yeah. Well, it's been it's a pleasure to have done that for the best part of. Almost 50 years, 40 years, I don't know, somewhat like that. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk about it today. Thank you. <laughs>